God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and how it speaks into real gritty situations of life. God, we believe that your word is life and you invite us into life the way that it was meant to be lived. And so, Holy Spirit, would you guide and direct my words? Would you open our hearts this morning to not only comprehend what your word is saying, but to love it and to live it out? Holy Spirit, would you uh, protect all of us today from any ill thought or unhelpful word? Uh, if I say anything that is not of you or unhelpful, would you have it fall on deaf ears? But would you speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When it comes to living under human institutions and authority, uh, the charge in First Peter has been pretty consistent. Uh, two words, submission and subversion kind of help shape our understanding. These two ideas help us understand how to live as chosen exiles here in this world, chosen by God, and because of that, very privileged to know him and to be part of his family, and yet not fully feeling at home here in this world because we are citizens of another kingdom. And what Peter does in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 13 to chapter 3, verse 7, is attempt to answer the question, what do we do when we find ourselves under authority that isn't godly? And these words submission and subversion help us, that when we find ourselves under authority that is less than godly, we are to submit where we can, honoring the authority that has been placed over us but when these systems come into conflict with our greater authority, namely Jesus himself, we are to subvert them in an effort to do good. Last week, we looked at how we are to relate to ungodly systems of government and how slaves were to respond to their ungodly masters. This week, Peter speaks into the institution of marriage specifically to wives who find themselves in a situation where they are Christians, but their husbands are not. And like these other scenarios, he calls them to look to Jesus as the example. In chapter 2, verse 21, he wrote, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then, in verse 7, uh, so that no one would exploit this particular teaching. He breaks from speaking to those who are under authority, and he gives a word of both exhortation and warning to Christian husbands on how they are to live with their wives in an understanding way. So perhaps the big idea of today's message is better thought of as a question rather than a statement. How does the example of Jesus shape and form Christian marriages? How does the example of Jesus shape and form Christian marriages? So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We joked with Pastor Dean, our Chester Park campus pastor, that this was a convenient week for him to take off. Um, He actually did it in a little bit of a slippery way. He asked Mike to preach for him next week and then said, oh, uh, I got the dates wrong. You'll have to do this one. So Pastor Mike's over at Chester Park, and there's a tendency or a temptation to say, maybe I'll dodge this particular passage, or this one is going to be challenging, and so maybe as a church We'll just skip it. But before we dive into this, here's the thing. As a church, we love the Bible. We do. And we see it as good news. And so I just want to give three caveats before we kind of dive into this passage together. First, I'm guessing there might be some pushback. Okay? I get it. There is some uneasiness when it comes to what the Bible does and does not say to husbands and to wives. Much of what we will read in these verses here sounds foreign and to some of you, potentially dangerous. But I would ask you to just have an open mind when we think about the Bible's instructions for husbands and wives and and consider that maybe our current day doesn't have a corner on the market of how things are best done. In fact, marriages are a mess right now. Half of marriages that begin in our country end in divorce. We have a lot of confusion and we've made some progress. And so, We should not sit from a a point culturally of thinking, oh, that Bible is so archaic and out of touch. It actually speaks into every single human culture. Second, uh, I just want to acknowledge that there are those in this room listening to this passage from very different places. Some of you are here and you are in happy, happy marriages. You are. And my prayer for you is that this passage would encourage you to love your spouse even more. Some of you here are in really unhappy marriages, maybe even abusive marriages. And so when you read these words, it's, it's heartbreaking. My prayer is that this would actually give you some practical guidance and help that you don't have to stay there or that marriage doesn't need to be broken forever. Some of you are here and you used to be married, but you're not anymore. Maybe you had a great marriage and your spouse died. And so any thinking about marriage causes you to miss them like crazy. Or others experienced a different kind of death and maybe you had a marriage end that was devastating in divorce. And so you read these words and and it just brings up a lot of regrets and a lot of heartache. Some of you here this morning are single. And you have a desire to be married someday. And so maybe these verses will give you some insight into the type of person that you are looking to marry someday. Some of you are single and you are happy about it. And you have no desire to be married. That Why exactly does the New Testament essentially give us each other's mail? Why do you think the, the New Testament is filled with example after example of practical instructions for husbands and wives and slaves and masters and parents and kids and employers and employees? Why write to us not only about our role, but about everybody's role? 
Because we're responsible for not only living out our faith in specific roles, but also responsible to help each other out as well. To speak into each other's life, whether we are married or single. See, we ought to encourage each other, and when we know what God calls the other to do, we should make it so it's not hard for them. Third, uh, today's message is not a marriage seminar with the goal of teaching all the things about marriage that the Bible has to say to husbands and wives. Peter is writing here to a very specific situation, namely, Christians, the wives have become Christians, but the husbands have heard the gospel and rejected it. How are these women to act and operate in this very vulnerable situation? And then he balances that off in verse 7 with a direct charge to Christian men that their marriages are to be different and to have a gospel quality to them. To understand this teaching, it's helpful to understand a little bit about the the way in which marriage was viewed in the Greco-Roman context. See, Peter is writing primarily to a Gentile audience in Asia Minor of those who had some Jewish background, but many of them Gentile backgrounds, and so they thought about marriage from a a Greco-Roman perspective. And in that day, women had very, very few rights. They were not considered to be equal partners in a marriage, but rather subservient to their husbands. In fact, Aristotle wrote a book, or wrote a work called Politics about 450 years before that was still very shaping in how Greeks and Romans uh, in that world viewed marriage. He wrote that the male is the head of the household and as such was a sovereign ruler over the home. In fact, he was the only one who had a rational soul, his quote, who exercised his rule and his domain. His authority was unchecked. Wives, children, and slaves in a Greco-Roman home were not worth instruction except to obey the husband, father, and master. And this still very much shaped marriage 450 years later when Peter wrote. Additionally, a Greek philosopher by the name of Plutarch wrote this, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. And so Peter is writing this practical instruction to wives who live in that world. The fact that Peter is even writing to wives at this moment is somewhat shocking and certainly countercultural. His instruction is incredibly subversive that they're not to follow the gods of their husband, but rather to follow Jesus as Lord and to subvert by doing good. See, as Christians, we believe that male and female are both created in the image of God. And Jewish people have affirmed this for years. And uh, Back in Genesis 1, God created male and female in his image. Genesis 2, they were made out of the same stuff. Genesis 2, Eve was called the, the helper or the, the help me to uh, an attribute or a name given to God himself in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Peter himself has already written in this letter that men and women, male and female, are co-heirs with Christ receiving this incredible inheritance that will never spoil or perish or fade away. And so we, we know that the gospel, the good news is for everyone, male or female, husband or wife, slave or free, adult or child, Jew or Gentile, are united in what Jesus has done. So what does Peter say to these wives? who find themselves with an unbelieving husband? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Submission and subversion, just like citizens in an ungodly empire and slaves of an ungodly master. The beginning word, likewise, reminds us that this teaching is part of this whole discourse on submission and subversion to human institutions of authority. He doesn't undermine the institution, but rather subverts it for the good. It's important to point out here that he is not speaking to all women and all men. He is speaking to wives in the context of a covenantal marriage relationship with their husband. This is an important distinction to make, is it not? The Bible is not teaching that all women are called to submit to all men, but rather that wives are to submit to their husbands, and not just their believing husbands, but also here, their unbelieving husbands. Now, this biblical teaching is going to need a little explanation, isn't it? What is submission, and what is it not? Submission must be understood within the context of the rest of the biblical story, what it says about marriage and authority in general. Submission is not the call to be a doormat. It is not about blind obedience or subjugation or weakness or humiliation. And it's certainly not about controlling another human being created in God's image. Submission is something you do willingly. It is acknowledging another's authority and willingly setting aside your right to have things your way. And as for Christians, it is for all of us in different contexts. Even in the classic marriage chapter, we're told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's choosing to follow another person's lead among those that are free. If you think back to the previous chapter, Peter writes to these citizens of heaven that you are free, and so you are to use your freedom to do good by submitting to the emperor in all the ways that you can. Now, we use this language all the time. Like in a court of law, you might, as a lawyer, say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me submit to you this explanation of how things happen, or this argument. Or, your honor, the judge, look at the evidence submitted by the prosecution. It is acknowledging the authority in the room to either determine the outcome of the case or the admissibility of evidence. As I said before, the Jewish context was a very different context than the Gentile one. That, that men and women, male and female, were both created in the image of God, out of the same stuff. And when Eve is introduced, she is introduced on the scene as the helper or the helpmeet, the very name given to God in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New Testament. See, submission has nothing to do with equality because we see it within the nature of God himself, don't we? Jesus submits his will to the Father, but none of us would say that Jesus is somehow less than the Father, would we? They are God. They are the Trinity, three persons and, and one God. And if that's a mystery to you, good. We can't fully understand and explain God. The Spirit is sent by both the, the Father and the Son. The Spirit's primary task is to, is to reveal to us who the Son is. The Son's primary task is to reveal to us who the Father is. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. It's like three and one. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that just because there is a submission that might be happening from a hierarchy-type standpoint does not equate an inequality, but rather a difference in role that complements one another 
in a truly beautiful way. In fact, at the end, when Peter addresses Christian husbands, he reminds them that they are to live with their wives in an understanding way because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, this whole structure, this whole kind of language seems ripe for abuse, doesn't it? I mean, haven't we dealt with patriarchy for years and this is, we need to throw it off? Is this simply the Bible subjugating women once again? Haven't we moved past that now? We see it all over in our media and all over that, 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 that male subjugating women bad, therefore women should subjugate men. Often they provide no actual alternative of equality and how we can work together in the context of that. Let me just say three things to this. First, the Bible has done more for the standing and equality of women than any other book or movement. Not only Jesus' ministry and how he specifically treated and honored women, but then how the church taught and approached and valued the unique role and ministry of women. So that this particular case that Peter is writing to actually wasn't all that rare, but was very common. That women would embrace Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, but their husbands would not. Second, I would say that our culture has gone too far and only sees things through the lens of power and authority and subjugation. Not too far in elevating women, but throwing off any and all difference between the sexes, seeking to make us pretend that there isn't anything different between men and women. I mean, some people even believe that gender itself is a social construct disconnected from any kind of embodied meaning. And that's madness. It simply is. It's how you can get a, a male swimmer who's 400th ranked in the world pretending to be a female and all of a sudden crushing all of the records. We, we need to understand that there is a difference, biologically speaking. And to suggest that is not craziness and it's not hateful. It's not bigoted. I got myself in a little bit of a hole. I can't touch that completely, but... Do you see how anytime our culture tries to think about men and women and the context of marriage as well, all it sees is power dynamics. And the Bible sees something so much more, a beauty and a complementarity that doesn't undermine any sense of authority or institution. Notice here that none of these human authority institutions are being undermined, but rather held up, but subverted for the good with a unique kingdom calling. Third, our world has, has plenty to learn about marriage. We're not doing well. And the results are devastating. Half of marriages that begin in our country end in divorce, and that has generation-long ripples in the lives of children and those who walk through that. And so I would just submit that we take on a humble posture and ask God, what can we learn here? But, but before I move on, what about the charge that the language of headship and submission is inherently destructive? What do we do with that? The sociological data is actually quite interesting. It both affirms this and confronts our modern assumption about this. I'm going to share with you about a page that I was reading in this book by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity. It's probably the best book that I've read in the last couple of years. It's really, really helpful. I would commend it to you. She says this, 
When sociologists conducted empirical studies, they found that men who identify as theologically conservative Christians divide into two distinct groups. Theologically conservative means historic Christian believing that the Bible is the Word of God. And these groups diverge dramatically. One consists of men who are religiously devout, defined by those who attend church at least three times a month. These men shatter the negative stereotypes. They are more loving to their wives and more emotionally engaged with their children than any other group in America. They are the least likely to divorce, and they have the lowest levels of domestic abuse and violence. Let me restate those findings since they run radically counter to prevailing stereotypes. Research has found that evangelical Protestant men who attend church regularly are the least likely of any group in America to commit domestic violence. How are these results possible? Researchers went back to the data and discovered that nominal Christians test out with far different results. Nominals are defined as those who identify with a religious tradition because of their family or cultural background, but who attend church sporadically, if at all. The word means in name only. For example, in a survey, a man might check the Baptist box because of his family background, even though he rarely attends church. Studies find that nominal Christian men do fit the negative stereotypes. Shockingly so. They spend less time with their children, either in discipline or shared activities. Their wives report significantly lower levels of happiness, and their marriages are far less stable. Whereas active evangelical men are 35% less likely to divorce than secular men, nominals are perhaps 20% more likely to divorce than secular men. Finally, the real stunner. Whereas committed church-going couples report the lowest rate of violence of any group, 2.8%, still happens, nominals report the highest rate of any group, 7.2%, even higher than secular couples. Sociologist Brad Wilcox, one of the nation's top experts on marriage, summarized his research in Christianity Today, writing, the most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. It seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear the language of headship and submission, but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms. Like skimming the news headlines without reading the actual stories. They cherry-pick verses from the Bible and read them through a grid of male superiority and entitlement that they have absorbed from the secular guy code for the real man. Then they manipulate scripture to justify their abusive behavior. End quote. Makes sense, doesn't it? Adopting the framework and the language of the Bible without the heart of Jesus can actually lead to all kinds of perversions and evil. Can I just say that I'm not naive enough to think that that isn't happening here in this church? That there might be some men, maybe even some women in our midst, who might have adopted the language but not the heart of Jesus Christ. And I want to be very clear to you right now. This is a safe place for you to confess your sin and get help and grow. But this is not a safe place 
for you to continue to dominate and abuse. It will not be tolerated. And just to be clear, when I say abuse, I'm not speaking just of specific events that are traumatic that happen. I mean creating an environment of control that seeks to dominate another person to your will. An environment of control that seeks to rob another person of agency and personhood. If you are this morning in a relationship like that, please speak up. And I know what that means for you. But I want you to know that we want to help. Not just you, but them as well. It is not okay to live like that, and it is not normal to live like that. We'll come back to this in verse 7. But the reality is he may be an authority in your life, but he is not the only authority in your life. There are other institutions of authority that God has upheld, like the government and criminality and also the church and the elders. And they should be there to help, and we are here to help. And yet, in light of all of this, Peter writes to unbelieving or to mar- wives married to unbelieving husbands, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that means they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter is not absolving here wives from the opportunity to speak the message of the gospel to their husbands. The gospel is news, and news must be shared with words. What he is referring to is the marriages where one has received Jesus and the other has heard about him and rejected him. And in the Greco-Roman world, the instruction here would condemn the wife and tell her to embrace the gods of her husband. Christianity, however, acknowledges and subverts and understands the ultimate authority of Jesus and a wife's allegiance to him but invites her to subvert this by doing good through her character and attitude and ultimately winning him over to the goodness of Jesus. Pastor Derek, our superior campus pastor, used to work among persecuted Christians in the Middle East. And he would tell stories uh, at our preaching meeting about Muslim women who would convert to Christianity but could not tell their husbands right away because either he would physically harm her or threaten to put her in a psychiatric facility. But story after story of women embracing the gospel and being transformed by Jesus and husbands would say later on, I noticed something changed about my wife. She was full of joy. She made me want to be better. Our marriage was healthier. Her parenting was better. And I didn't know what was behind it until now. See, this is not flashy evangelism. It is long and slow, but for Peter, it is the best way to both submit to and subvert the attitudes of an unbelieving husband. See, we are called to share the gospel with words, but sometimes after words have been spoken, we can win people over with our transformed lives. We are to display the power of the gospel by living transformed lives that have a different kingdom quality to them. Don't underestimate that. He writes, do not let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, in saying these things, he is not outlawing makeup or gold jewelry or braided hair or stylish clothing, but he is speaking to the Christian wife of what makes her distinctly different. See, there's a tendency, a worldly way to think about it, a way that maybe some wives in this room have thought about it themselves. If only I was pretty enough, then he would listen. But that's how the world thinks. In fact, did you know that the U.S., in the U.S. alone, people spend upwards of $90 billion a year on cosmetics and beauty products? Far and away, the highest in the world, more than any other country, and we don't even make the top 20 of happiest people in the world. The point being made here is not to out, but rather where you can't wear clothes that make you feel good or jewelry is inherently wrong, but rather there is something about you that makes you even more beautiful. Who you are on the inside. See, one of the things that makes us distinctly Christian is that God's Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out. We begin to take on Jesus' character, and that is beautiful. Peter says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, he's not telling women that they must be quiet and reserved. I know many joyful, boisterous women who always feel bad when they read these verses and think that they're not godly enough. That's not what it's saying. It's not talking about your natural temperament to be seen and not heard, but instead the beauty of a woman whose godly character speaks more than her words. It is precious in God's sight, and it is beautiful in the eyes of her husband. In addition, a gentle and a quiet spirit is not even distinctly a feminine trait, but gentleness is one of the fruit of the spirit that men and women are to aspire to. The illustration that Peter uses in verses 5 and 6, if I'm honest, is really odd. Abraham and Sarah? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. If you're teaching on biblical marriage, why would you use Abraham and Sarah as an example, or in particular, Sarah and their marriage had some really challenging dynamics. (laughs) Immediately after God calls Abraham and promises him land and an heir, he travels down to Egypt immediately after the promise. And he fears for his own life. And so he says to his wife, Sarah, don't tell people that you're my wife or they'll kill me. Tell everybody that you're my sister. Now, to be fair, I've never been in a context where I felt fear for my life because someone wanted to kill me and marry Liz, okay? This is not a a, a thing that's very common in our culture, right? (laughs) I hope. (laughs) So there's a little bit of foreignness to this. But I got to believe that the solution isn't, hey, don't tell people you're married to me. Because what happens to Abraham? He gets very wealthy. 
What happens to Sarah? She ends up in Pharaoh's harem. That's not a good trade. And then in chapter 15, God promises again that they will have an heir. And they're a little old, and so they decide to make an arrangement, and they're like, Abraham, why don't you take my servant and have a son through him, then he'll be mine as well. Great marriage, right? (laughs) Think maybe Hagar had a thought about this? Or then later on, when Abraham does it again with a guy named Abimelech, right after God made the promise. See, for God to fulfill that promise, Abraham had to be alive, right? And so you see a a, a deep doubting, even in the man of great faith. And then finally, when the angels appear and says, no, it's going to happen within the next year, Sarah laughs. But this is where it's quoting, and she says, oh, okay. There's so much in the story of Abraham and Sarah that is tragic and probably worth exploring at some point. But the point here of this being a story of, that to point to for wives of unbelieving husbands is Sarah is a godly example of respecting and winning her man over. And he says, and you are her children. This is invoking covenantal promises to Gentile believers saying, you're her children too. Really, the charge to wives in this passage is summarized, win him over with who you are. Your renewed character and your true beauty shining through. Now, for those of you who are single, you're like, okay, this isn't the most practical or relevant for me. Actually, it's unbelievably relevant for you. This is incredibly instructive for who you might pursue as a husband or as a wife. Women, if you are considering a guy, make sure that he is admirable and godly. A man who who loves and fears the Lord, and you wouldn't mind following his lead. Men, a woman who loves and fears the Lord is a woman of deep, beautiful character. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be physically attracted to your spouse or your future spouse. In fact, you should. God created us a certain way to appreciate physical beauty. That's part of the package of finding someone attractive. In fact, I would say that if you don't, you you probably won't treat them the way that they deserve to be treated. But what what we're, we're getting at here is that outward appearance is only part of the package. You can be unbelievably miserable with someone who is beautiful on the outside but not on the inside, male, male or female. Additionally, as you age, your outward beauty fades. Some guys go bald, I hear. <laughs> Have to test that one out. But who they are shines through more beautiful and more beautiful every day. Peter concludes his instructions with one verse for the husbands. He breaks from speaking to those who are under authority and in a position of vulnerability and speaks directly to Christian husbands and says, oh, but in your marriages, it's going to be different. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Live in an understanding way. 
showing honor, remembering that she is your co-heir in Christ. She is your equal before God. The culture may diminish her value, but you will not. She is an heir with you of the grace of God. What does it mean when he says, showing honor to her, the woman, as the weaker vessel? What does that mean? As if we needed another hard thing to wrestle through. It doesn't mean that she's weaker emotionally or intellectually, as many cultures have believed. It was prevalent belief in Peter's day. It certainly doesn't mean that she's more gullible, as some have even taught to this day. It probably means two things. One is that, in general, she is physically weaker and therefore more vulnerable. And then secondly, because of that, she is also more vulnerable socially, power-wise. She is trusting her husband in some ways to a greater degree. She has, in their day, less rights and privileges than her husband. Now, not all women are physically weaker than men, but genetically speaking, it's pretty clear across the board. God has made us different. And Peter says to husbands, honor her. Use your strength to protect her and to keep her safe. Remember that she is more vulnerable socially than you are. Use your social power and standing to honor her rather than to exploit her. Treat her well. Because most often in the Bible, God signs with the vulnerable, doesn't he? The poor, the alien, the sojourner the one who needs protecting, which leads to his last warning, so that your prayers are not hindered, he says. See, verse 12 uh, and following, he, he quotes from Psalm 34, and he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, just a few verses later, elaborating on this, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In a very real way, Peter is speaking to Christian husbands and says, if you want God's favor and you want his ear in prayer, treat your wife well, with honor, seeking to understand her. One of the great mysteries of the world, right? But if you want the face of the Lord to be against you, let me just say, guys, I don't care how strong or tough you think you are, you lose that every time. Every time. If you want the face of the Lord to be against you, then demean your wife. Use your social and political and marital power and authority to exploit her and make her life miserable, and then you will have God to deal with. Let me put it a different way. Guys, you do not want to treat God's daughters poorly. Men, how many of you have, a, have daughters? What would you want to do if someone hurt them? That's a glimpse. Don't treat God's daughters poorly. I'm going to close our time with where we began. How does the example of Jesus shape and form distinctly Christian marriages? For, for to this you've been called, verse 21 of chapter 2, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
See, we learn in the scriptures that Jesus is the example both for the husbands and for the wives. See, Jesus perfectly submitted to and honored his father, entrusting himself to him who judges justly, giving wives a model of what submission and grace looks like. But Jesus is also the husband of his people, willingly laying down his life for her, laying aside his preferences and even his rights for her sake. He took on that which wasn't his fault, and he made it his responsibility. And even now, he is preparing us to be the perfect spotless bride on the day of his return. So how do we apply this? To those who are married, marriage has an incredible opportunity to either picture the mystery of the gospel or through its brokenness to proclaim an anti-gospel to the world. Guys, this is something we have to get right. And when we do, it reveals the profound mystery of Christ's love for his church. If you're at a spot where this is broken today, I want to just tell you that the gospel of Jesus can provide incredible healing. But you're probably not going to get out on your own. You're probably going to need some help. You need to say something. You need to reach out. On the screen is just an anonymous hotline number that if you're experiencing the kind of control and abuse that maybe we've hinted at or talked about, please reach out. Maybe talk to someone in your city group or to a pastor or to a trusted leader. You don't have to live like that. It's not what God intends for either of you. Reach out. We want to help. To the single people in our midst, I want you to know you're not JV in the Christian life. If marriage embodies the gospel and gives a picture of the gospel, then singleness shows forth the sufficiency of the gospel to be enough. You don't have to be married to experience a fully human life. Jesus never married. He never had sex. He never had physical offspring. And yet he lived the most distinctly human life imaginable. And his offspring outnumbers anyone else. Listen to Isaiah 53. As in the Old Testament, they describe in great detail the crucifixion and death of Jesus, but it's followed with words of hope. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, to think through this from a single perspective. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In the ancient world, your identity, your name, was tied to your children. It was a way in which you lived on even when you died. And so child-rearing and having offspring was seen as almost sacred. It was part and parcel of who you were. So if you weren't married, or if you were barren and had no children, you were often looked down upon. But here we see that in the kingdom of God, offspring is different. That Jesus has offspring that he accounts or makes righteous, elevating, in many ways, the single life to equal with that of the married life, just different expressions of it. Some of you need to hear that. 
the family. And if marriages image and show forth to the world something of the relationship that God has with his people, your single life and walking in holiness, and that shows the sufficiency of the gospel for Jesus to be enough, it also provides the key for married people to love the other selflessly even when they don't fulfill your needs. So whether you are married or single, divorced or widowed, the gospel speaks into the nitty-gritty of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to think about marriage and authority and submission and honor and all the things. God, for the marriages that are happy this morning, I pray that you would cause husband and wife to love each other even more deeply than before. For those that are broken, God, would you help them and would you speak in and would this be the day that's the turning point? God, for those in our body that long to be married but aren't, would you satisfy them and would you give them a grid for how to choose a spouse? God, for those who either are divorced or widowed, thank you, Jesus, that you are enough and sufficient and that you bring hope and that you redeem even our brokenness. For those who are happy, God, I pray that you would multiply the legacy of their lives with many spiritual sons and daughters. Thank you, Jesus, that you redeem and restore and that your word is practical and helpful. In Jesus' name, amen.